0: Our Bible reading this evening is taken from Colossians chapter 3 and we're going to be reading verses 1 through to 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is God's word.
1: When Frank asked me to do this, I found myself in a bit of a horns of a dilemma because I like to keep two parts of my life separate. Um, I, I lecture, and I can, I can lecture, and I preach. I think I can preach. And I, I have very different ways of approaching both of those. For example, I'll, I write all my lectures on... Uh, on my computer, but I handwrite all my sermons and it just makes it a bit more a bit more personal. But tonight's a bit of a combination of lecture uh, and sermon and uh, so I, I, I really wasn't quite sure what, what to do with it. A couple of years ago uh, I was asked to do to do a lecture on, on Martin Luther and uh, it's, it's part of a series that, that we did in Union College and it's it's in this, and copies are available at the back should you wish to, to purchase one. <laughs> and I, I, for that, I looked at Martin Luther and his music. And when Frank asked me to to do something on, on Luther, that was the first thing that, that came to my mind. And I thought, now, is that a bit of a sort of cheap way of getting getting out of things, or is it simply good enough to to tell Martin Luther's life story. But we're here to worship, and we're here to to think as Christian people about what it means to be Christian people. And as I looked over what I'd I'd done for that that lecture, I thought, actually, yes, this is a reasonable thing to do. And in your notes, you can see that uh, I haven't framed this as a lecture. Uh, Is there there a spare one there, Philip? I forgot to keep one for myself. (laughs) Don't worry about the 14 points on the back. That's not a 14-point sermon. What, What I want to say is actually framed around a couple of verses, as you see in Colossians chapter 3, that Philip read for us earlier and a parallel section in Ephesians 5 and what those verses are saying I want to illustrate from Luther's life and to to take that those themes that come from scripture filtered through Luther and then bring them into uh, uh, our our current experience. and as you can see, there are really five themes that, that I'm going to work through. Another little introductory, introductory comment is, is this. Um, I think one of my, my criticisms of much contemporary preaching in Northern Ireland is that y- you can often leave feeling beaten up because people have told you how, you know, how bad we are and how far, far, far How far short we fall of of what we should be. I think we rejoice generally in in Bloomfield that that, that's not our pattern of preaching. It's not the pattern that that, that Frank sets or the rest of us us follow. And it would be very easy for what I'm going to do tonight to to let it sound like a criticism. I want to assure you at the very start and especially for for the musicians in whose work we revel. This is as much a celebration and uh, a reminder of what we do when we worship as God's people together. But also, it has implications for what we do as, as how we live. You can tell a lot about people by what they whistle. Now, whistling isn't terribly common these days. But my father was a great whistler. And he would just walk down the road whistling. And as I look back at, uh, at the things he used to whistle, I, it's, it's very poignant for me because it does say some, some very interesting things about about having very good things. The music that you listen to, if I can put it into more contemporary terms, tells us a lot about you. Now, so go home and look at your music collection later and see what it says, says about you. It's a bit, a bit scary, perhaps. Another difference between a lecture and uh, a sermon is this. Uh, as you know, at Union, we work in partnership with Queen's University. It's a secular university, deliberately so when it was set up, which means that I can't pray uh, in a lecture. Um, So what I do from time to time is I'll say to a class, this is how Christians might pray if we were praying. (laughs) (laughs) It it works. But shall we pray together as we start to think? Gracious God, we're only interested in Luther in passing. Because like him, we want to hear Jesus speak. We want to know what Jesus has to say to us. So as we, as we think around this great man's life, we pray that by your Spirit, we might hear the even greater man, the last Adam. May we hear him speaking. For we pray in his name. Amen. So as you have a look down, down the, the um, notes on, on the front of uh, our little handout, you can see the first thing that we come to is the, the, the double phrase, in all wisdom, that Paul uses. And then in parallel to that, in the Ephesian texts, he uses something not the same but actually quite different, not drunk but filled with the Spirit. So taking these two phrases together, we can see that Paul was appealing to the early Christians to engage with their worship as whole people. The Colossian text tells them to engage wisely. That is, with that God-given capacity to think clearly and make good decisions. They're to praise with their minds. But the Ephesian text demands that Christian worship has an openness to the Holy Spirit, And it's particularly interesting to make a contrast that that Paul makes in this text. He contrasts Christian worship with pagan revelries. Now, what's the contrast he doesn't make? He doesn't say, these pagan revelries are wild, exciting things. You should be sober and staid and controlled. No, he says, these pagan revelries are wild, exciting things. Let the Holy Spirit make your your worship wild and exciting, but in a wholesome way. So Paul's saying wisdom and wildness. One of Martin Luther's core criticisms of the church that he was part of grew up, of course, in the Catholic Church in Germany and eventually became an Augustinian monk, and as an augustinian monk he pursued holiness he just wanted to be godly but he could never quite get to grips with the sin in his life every time he felt he had something dealt with something else crept up and he was always if you like beating himself up and it was only when he discovered in in a flash if you like as a result of a traumatic experience during a, a thunderstorm that it's not all about working for salvation. It's all about accepting the gift of salvation that God gives to us. When he discovered that, he found that his heart was set free to worship in a way that he had never done before. And when he looked at what was going on in the Catholic Church in their worship, he could see that the patterns of their worship were exactly what he had grown up with, and they were keeping people down. they were tying people in. There was no freedom. The words were spoken by the priest and the people listened. The liturgical music was very different from the music of the people. The people were disengaged they uh, the mass was in Latin, so their minds couldn't understand it. The music was too swanky in our terms too highfalutin for them, so they couldn't have any emotional release through it. And as he began to reorder his thinking and gradually reorder what he believed the church would should be, he believed that the people must worship with their minds and with freedom. And the most obvious way of returning worship to the people that Luther um, saw very quickly was to stop worshiping in Latin and start worshiping in the language of the people. In German, of course. And he published his German liturgy in 1525. So now the common people could understand what was going on because they could simply understand the language. But more than that, worship was no longer a performance at the front, but it was something in which people engaged. Congregational singing was essentially unknown. Luther said, no. The people must sing. The creeds were recited from the front in Latin. Luther said, "No, the people must say these words together and rejoice in them. Interestingly, Luther also recognized something else before he translated the German liturgy, in, or sorry, the, the traditional Latin, Latin liturgy, into German. He actually wrote a revised liturgical text in Latin. And his reason for doing this was that you can only make change as fast as the people are willing to change. You can't rush ahead. You can't take them too quickly. Fantastic lesson for for many places in that. It's not a thing that, that I think we struggle desperately with. Uh, so far as I'm aware, uh, in the time that I've been here, we haven't had what in other congregations are called worship wars, as there are two fighting factions who, who, who love different, different styles of worship. And I know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Frank and, and Bill know colleagues of ours, who've got themselves into dreadful difficulties by trying to move too quickly. Luther was wise. He said, the people have to be engaged with their minds, with their emotions, but let's take it at a sensible pace. great majority of, of Luther's hymns were centred on one thing. In fact, I think we can probably go beyond that. All of Luther's hymns had one central focus, and, of course, it's right to say not one thing but one person. And if you look down at the second little note, you'll see here he's reflecting what Paul says. You see, to the Colossians, he talks about the Word of Christ. In Ephesians, he talks about in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in, Paul, in what Paul is saying here, he's saying that worship should center on God himself, And at the center of our worship, the object of our worship, should be Jesus himself. But more than that, that the Lord himself should lead our worship. Worship is both an offering that we bring to God, but it's something in which we allow God to lead us. And you see, that's a natural consequence of saying that worship isn't done from the front, it's done from from the pews. And that reminds us that each time we come to worship, we're here to meet Jesus. But each time we come to worship, we're here to allow Jesus free passage in our lives. The majority of Luther's hymns are either direct paraphrases of Scripture or use deeply scriptural language. For Luther, he said this, In church... God's Word is proclaimed to us in many different ways, verbally and visually. The sermon, the prayers, the offering, and the sacraments all preach. So it is no surprise that hymns are proclamations of the gospel. For Luther, hymns tell the gospel clearly, but they also recognize that the congregation responds to the gospel. Sir, I've just realized I should have been moving those on. (laughs) apologies so in all wisdom but filled with the Spirit centered on God centered in Christ listening to God speak through scripture and responding if being Christ-centered is easy in the New Testament Luther believed that the Old Testament also spoke of Jesus Christ And this is well illustrated by his most famous hymn that we're going to be doing our best to sing uh, at the end of the service or towards the end of the service. A mighty fortress is our God. It has its origins in Psalm 46, but it's not a translation or even a paraphrase. It's a thorough Christianizing of of that Psalm, making it center on Jesus in ways that are implicit in the Psalm, become explicit and what Luther did with the psalm. So he Christianizes the Old Testament. Just a wee thought in passing here. The hymns that we sing, focused on Jesus, full of scriptural language, yeah, many of them are. Let's be cautious about hymns that are all about me. Have you ever noticed that some hymns, and I'm not here making a distinction between older hymns and new hymns, between uh, Victorian hymns and contemporary hymns, far from it. Some of the older hymns, I'll be coming back to this later, are just as much about me as some contemporary hymns are. So as we sing, we sing about Jesus. Jesus. Luther makes the whole Bible speak of Jesus Christ. Paul would be very happy with that. And we think, yes, of course it does. Here's a word that has had new currency in recent years. Many of you may remember like like me in Sunday school, learning a different uh, question and answer from the catechism every week and just working our way through the catechism week after week after week. Some of us may even remember some of it. (laughs) Um, And catechesis is uh, having a bit of a a new revival. And catechesis is simply about learning. It's about learning what we believe, and learning it in a structured way. Notice what Paul says in in the third point. Paul talks about teaching and admonishing. He talks about addressing one another. St. Paul wants more to be taking place than just singing praise. Paul tells the Ephesians to address, the Colossians to teach and admonish, and Luther would have said amen to that. Luther knew that much of what we believe we learn through what we sing. If we sing great things, we learn great things. And if we sing rubbish, we learn rubbish. I have one example of this that I'm going to throw the, the words up on the screen. Look at what, at what uh, Luther does with the creed. Now, I, I realize it's a bit small. My apologies for that. You see the first couple of lines. We all believe in one true God who created earth and heaven. That's almost a direct Um, Quotation from the Creed I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. So the first uh, three lines, sorry, uh, are, are almost directly from the Creed. But look at what he does after that. He says, Here are the consequences of God being creator and Father. Here are the good things that God does for us. He feeds our soul and body. He gives us all that we need. He provides for us. He through snares and perils leadeth, leadeth, watching that no harm betide us. He cares for us day and night and governs all things by his might. See what he's doing there? He's taking a theological statement and working it out so that we can live by it. Luther did that very, very regularly. But it wasn't only in singing in church that Luther did that, moving from theological declaration to reflecting on the consequences of it. For Luther, Christian teaching also happened in two other places, that is, in families and in schools. Luther taught that heads of households should instruct their family using his catechism. Also, fathers should take primary responsibility for the family's morning prayers which should be a happy occasion. And he actually says this, after you have finished your family prayers each morning, go to work with joy, singing a song. Yeah? I've spoken to a number of folk recently, and they do this. And we did it when the, when the girls were young. For those of you who have, have young children or who will have young children in the near future, sing with them. Do. doesn't matter whether you can sing or not. They're probably not going to be terribly good either. But just sing with them. And in so doing, they learn. They understand what it is to be a Christian. But in schools as well, and this is where it gets a bit more more difficult for us. In schools for Luther, teaching as a whole is set firmly in the context of worship. He believed that schools should have corporate praise every morning and they should have hymns as part of their daily diet of worship. And he was very concerned to link Christian doctrine with education as a whole. And this is typical of his approach to young people. He often shows a deep concern for young people and gives specific instructions for their nurture and formation into Christian adults. Listen to what he says about young people and music. Music is an outstanding gift to God, sorry, gift of God. And next to theology, I would not give up my slight knowledge of music for a great consideration. And youth should be taught this art, for it makes fine, skillful people. He clearly believes that if young people are to be kept from wandering into bad places and nurtured in faith, then music is a gift from God that can be used to shield them and to nurture them in right thinking. So again, the music that we listen to with our young people, wholesome. It's a very high understanding of music, very high. Maybe an overestimation, well, I don't know. But Luther's high appreciation of music came from three sources. And I want to look just just briefly at those three. Luther himself was a musician. And we're not quite sure just how good a musician he was. Some say he was modest. Others say he was accomplished. He certainly played publicly. And here's a a painting of Luther playing the lute uh, with his, his family. But Luther's appreciation of music goes beyond simple enjoyment. It's been suggested that Luther himself endured much personal suffering, and at times when he was really down, he perhaps drifted into clinical depression. And if this is so, it's likely that his words to a friend echo his own experience. This is what he said to his friend. When you're sad, therefore, and when melancholy threatens to get the upper hand, say, Arise, I must play a song to the Lord. Then begin striking the keys and singing in accompaniment as David and Elisha did, until your sad thoughts vanish. If the devil returns and plants worries and sad thoughts in your mind, resist him manfully and say, "Begone, devil. I must now play and sing unto my Lord Christ. Again, interesting, isn't it? And we hear... The biblical echoes of that. He clearly saw music as a way of returning to personal peace. We remember in the Old Testament, yeah, Saul, the king of Israel, and he called for David to come and play and his peace was, was restored. Elisha the prophet, not perhaps so well known, but some of his prophetic insights came to him in the context of music. Goodness. This music thing, it's more than just what we listen to casually. So, again, can you, can you take that away with you? How does music influence your mood? Are you listening to music that will take you to a good place emotionally, or music that takes you to difficult places. Luther goes on, it was not without reason that the fathers and the prophets wanted nothing else to be associated as closely with the Word of God as music. Very positive. But of course despite being very positive about music, and I assume he had never listened to Black Sabbath, Beyonce, or what about this one, Post Malone? No, I'd never heard of him either until I looked him up. He was aware that there's a darker side to music. And he said this. Sorry, before quoting him, let me say this. He did know that it could be used to take people to evil places. So he wanted the church to have a body of music that might counteract the use to which music was put in promoting sinful behavior. In his day, as in old days, I suppose, body music and body songs were common and catchy tunes meant that those played on the minds of young people. He said this, the church must give its young people music to wean them away from love ballads and carnal songs and to teach them something of value in their place is not just magnificent eh? are we doing that yeah are we encouraging our young people to listen to good quality christian music that's their type of music not not mine little phrase that occurs in in both texts, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Clearly, this longing for good music is just one aspect of Luther's greater project. While we're focusing on tonight, he saw it as, as a tool to promote the Reformation, to teach his people, to encourage them when they were down, to develop thinking patterns along righteous and wholesome lines. But to do this, he knew that the music that they were listening to had to be the sort of music that people enjoyed. And this leads us to Paul's thinking about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We can't know for certain what Paul means by this threefold pattern. Some suggest that they refer to Scripture, psalms, paraphrases of other parts of Scripture, hymns, and Things that were more off the cuff, more local, more ephemeral that would come and go, led by the Spirit for the moment, and then drifting away. The infant church gathered music from other sources and invented its own song. We've heard already that Luther was a hymn writer. He hardly wrote an original word in his life. He certainly hardly wrote an original tune. He took what was good elsewhere and wrapped the gospel in it. He took older hymns and rewrote the words. He took contemporary uh, folk tunes and wrote new words to them. It's sometimes been said of Luther that he took uh, drinking songs that were used in, in pubs and wrote Christian words to them. That's not actually true. He did take some familiar folk tunes, but not the uh, 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 not the tunes of uh, of the bars. It's worth remembering that the distinction between sacred music and secular was not as clear then as it is now. Think of the music that we sing in church. It's different from the music outside, isn't it? It has connections but it also has differences. And so Luther walked this this sort of tightrope, recognizing that there were certain types of music that you couldn't go to because of their connections. And curiously, that was old church music that was associated with the bad old ways of doing things, but also deeply immoral secular music. See where we're going with this? Couldn't go to either of those places, but somewhere in the middle He recognized that there was music that was like that that he could use, and there was music that was like that that he could use. This was brilliant. This was just great. And I think it's one of the glories that we have in in much contemporary Christian music, that it's not exactly the same as out there, but it's close enough to resonate with many people. And surely we should be encouraging Uh, people to to write songs, to write hymns, to write new music that resonates with young people. Maybe just a little warning that I never thought I would have given 10 years ago. There's been a revival, hasn't there, of some older songs brought from the Victorian era. And uh, they've been brought and, and reused. Some are great, some are rubbish, and just because I and people of my generation might feel, oh, that takes me back, is still no reason to sing rubbish. So whether it's music that's new and contemporary, or whether it's music that's brought from the distant past, let's be like Luther, weigh it up, make sure it's doing what we want it to do, focusing on Jesus. Helping people to learn gospel things and sending them out encouraged, their spirits lifted by the music and the words together. And then finally, just just a brief word on Thanksgiving. The last of St Paul's points. I really don't actually have much to add. My time is gone. One of the key characteristics of Luther's music was just this. Let me quote. Just a couple of, of words from him, a couple of lines. All unite to raise our song of glad unceasing praise. Alleluia. All this for us thy love hath done. By this to thee our love is won. For this are joyful songs we raise. For this we sing thee ceaseless praise. Lord, by the brightness of your light, you and the faith do men unite. Of every land and every tongue, this to your praise, O Lord, be sung singing our thanks to God, yeah, while our worship should never be trivial, it seems to me that thanksgiving is something that we always ought to do with enthusiasm. Have you ever been thanked with no enthusiasm? My uh, daughter Naomi just got a, a, a mug recently, I don't mean a boyfriend, I mean a mug that you you drink. And on the mug it says, I'm sorry I'm late, I didn't really want to come in the first place. (laughs) And sometimes you know that thank you really means I'm glad that's over. I wonder sometimes, does God look down and say, Yeah, they're really saying, I'm glad that's over. Um, As you all know, I'm I'm a Presbyterian. Most of us here are. There's a bit of closet charismatic in me, I have to admit that. And there's a bit of closet Catholic as well, because I like a bit of liturgy every now and again. (laughs) I wonder, is our Presbyterian heritage really uh, more faithful to the Scots-Irish way of doing things than it is actually to Luther, or Calvin, as as we'll see next week. Luther didn't have to throw himself into his music. He really did. Very enthusiastic. And it's this aspect of it, surely, that ought to cause us to throw ourselves into our worship, to sing with gusto and enthusiasm. Whether, as I've said before, whether we can or not is irrelevant. to sing our praises to God. So there on the second side of your sheet, you'll see 14 little points. 14 things that I think we can learn from Martin Luther about our singing in church, about our singing as we walk along the road, or perhaps for most of us, our singing as we drive. Do you sing as you drive? Do you, when nobody else can hear you. It's fantastic. Think about our singing as we worship, our singing as we walk or drive, our singing with children, our singing. When my father-in-law was coming to the end of his life, he was in a nursing home. He had a form of dementia that became, you know, he he gradually lost touch and one day when I was visiting with him, just him and me, um, I thought I'll read something, to normally I did read something with him, normally scripture, but this time I thought uh, I'll just say the 23rd Psalm with him because I'd forgotten to put my, my Bible in my pocket. I thought, yeah, I, I know that by heart in the metrical version. And I started to, to say it with him. And I hadn't reached the end of the first verse when I just couldn't stop myself singing it. Just him and me in his room. And the words that were so familiar to him and the music that was so familiar to him just struck something in him. something about singing that expresses the gospel in ways that mere words just don't quite get. Martin Luther got it. I believe we in this church do get it and we celebrate that tonight. Can you have a think about taking that over into all sorts of other parts of your lives? Places where you wouldn't have thought of it before. What do you think? might be interesting. Well, let's finish. Let's finish. Folks, are you going to come up and join me? Lest I sing, A mighty fortress is our God on my own. Luther would have been utterly distraught if he had thought, Drew, you spoke to them about singing. You extolled the value of singing. You told them something about its place as the Reformation took hold, but you didn't do it.